Well, good morning and welcome to C3, Crossbridge Community Church. My name is Jordan. If it is your first time visiting, I am our online pastor here and then also one of our teaching pastors and grateful to be able to share the message with you today, whether you're here in person, visiting or online. And if you are new, I would love to get to know you afterwards and put a name with a face and give you a cheesy candy box out in the lobby. And if you're visiting online for the first time, also let me know in the chat and I will make a note to connect with you after service. But we are kicking off a brand new series today called Right in the Eye. Right in the Eye, where we're going to be walking through multiple stories through the book of Judges and then also a story in the book of Ruth. But I just wanted to give a disclaimer like Brad gave at the beginning of service and we sent a warning out to different families this week that this Specifically today, we're going to be walking through, in my opinion, the most disturbing throughout a story throughout all of Scripture. And so if you are visiting today, it only goes up from here. Um, but I wanted to just invite you into this place because we're walking through this series so that we can see how bad sin corrupts. How greatly sin corrupts. And when individuals make decisions that are right in their own eye versus what's right in God's eyes, there are negative consequences. There are consequences that greatly impact individuals, not just those close to you, but generational issues as well. And so we're looking through these stories that are intense and they are vile and evil and demonic and very disturbing stories, not so that we can jump back in time and try to necessarily apply what happened there and say, ooh, where can we find this exact situation for today? But so that we can have a few takeaways at the end of the message to say, hey, this is what sin does when it is the root of your decisions. And this is what sin does when you make decisions that are right in your own eye. And in order to do that today... We are actually going to be starting with the end of the book of Judges, chapter 19, 20, and 21, again, to show exactly how bad sin got and how bad decisions were made for Israel. Um, so if you want to turn with me there, chapter 19, 20, and 21, the title of the message today is, It Only Gets Worse. It Only Gets Worse. And as you're flipping with me, it's a chapter 19 of Judges. I want to kind of give a history of what's happened and where we are entering into today. You see, Judges is the seventh book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then how I remember it is Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Poor Ruth, okay? So Judges is smack there in the middle between Joshua and Ruth. And here's what's happening. Moses was the first kind of leader I guess of the Israelites that God had sent to send Israel out of slavery from the Egyptians. We see that in the story of that very tail end of Genesis. And then the story of Exodus chapter 1 talks about the uh, enslavement for the Israelites. So Moses goes, he uh, combats Pharaoh, ends up going through the sea, and then begins their decade and decade and decade journey into the promised land. However... Because of the Israelites' continued sin and idolatry, Moses never got to see the promised land up close. He got to see it from a distance, and then they continued on their wandering, and then he ends up dying. And so then Joshua rises up and is actually the next leader of the Israelites who brings the Israelites into the promised land. 
Then he ends up dying, and we have this three to four hundred year period known as the period of the judges. And just put a pin in that for a second. After the judges reign, Samuel comes in and leads the Israelites for a little bit, but they continue to beg God for a king. They want somebody to govern over them, to rule over them, to help them navigate what's happening throughout their tribes, throughout their culture. And so Samuel goes and finds someone who is a godly person, who God is very honored by, actually is amazed by his leadership, and Saul is promoted to become a king. Starts out in a positive way, but then allows sin to influence his decisions and turns into one of the most treacherous kings to ever rule Israel. David ends up rising up, and a lot of times we put David in this spotlight as a man after God's own heart, but then David allowed sin to influence his decisions, and he commits some of the most evil sins and vile sins with the most deathly consequences as well. And it's king after king after king after king who continues to do right in their own eye. And that is when God establishes and says in Jeremiah, that there will be a new covenant through Jesus Christ that comes as our one and only king because human kingdoms never work. And so now we're in the book of Judges, kind of the middle time period between Joshua and the kings. And we have these judges where God sends different individuals, males and females, to go and judge over Israel for different time periods. And what's fascinating about this book is that the first like 10 to 12 chapters start out with, and the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so God punished them, sends a judge to judge their actions and navigate and help lead them for X amount of years, and then that judge dies. Then chapter two, and the evil continued in the eyes of the Lord, and so God sends another judge to judge Israel and lead, and they lasted X amount of years, and so on and so forth. And so it's a continual sin pattern of where we see how sin leads to destruction time and time again. And that leads us to chapter 19. Again, we're starting with the end of Judges because we want to show exactly how bad it got and what happens when sin is the root of our decision-making and when we live in a way that is right in our own eyes. I wanted to give a warning again like Brad did. Uh, this is one of, uh, this is probably in my eyes the most disturbing story throughout scripture. Some of you may not be familiar with this. It probably didn't show up in your kid's Bible growing up. Um, but I think it's so important for us at the end to have these certain takeaways and show how it only gets worse when we continue to allow sin to lead us in our decision-making and in our lives. How I'm going to walk through this story is I'm going to do more of storytelling than reading verse by verse, because it's over 80 verses of reading um, in the three chapters, 19, 20, and 21. And so throughout the sermon, we'll, we'll put up different verses to help us navigate our story and continue to draw our attention And then at the end of the story, we'll walk through eight takeaways. I did warn bridge kids and youth that we might go a few minutes over today um, because we're covering a lot, but I think it's important for us um, to really dive into the text of what God has in store for us. And so let's begin. It only gets worse. Chapter 19, the story is about a Levite and his concubine. 
Now, a concubine in their culture, whether it be with the Israelite culture or the Philistines or um, the Jezebites, all these different cultures had um, a concubine, many concubines that men would claim as property. And a concubine was either a girlfriend, a quick night of sex, a wife, a piece of property, a slave, um, a servant. It could be a list of different things. The list goes on and on and on. And so this Levite, a part of the tribe of Ephraim, um, part of Israel, has a concubine. Some individuals had one or two concubines. Some had 300 concubines. Even people who were leaders of Israel had multiple, multiple concubines. This was a part of their culture. And if you thought that in and of itself was bad, the story only gets worse. So what happens is the concubine ends up um, leaving the man, leaving the Levite, and going back home. And after about four months, this Levite starts missing his concubine. Starts missing part of his property. And so he ends up going after her four months later and is welcomed into the home of her and her father with his servant and donkey. So his male servant and him go into the home, um, and they start, you know, having a great old time with the family. They start drinking and getting drunk, and by the time they're ready to leave, the father starts begging them, no, 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 don't leave yet. It's nighttime. It's getting dark. There's robbers out there. You could be abused. You could be hurt. You could be killed. How about you stay the night, and you can leave in the morning? And so then they wake up the next morning, and it continues again. They get ready to go, but the father's like, how about you have a couple of beers, some white claws, hard seltzers, you know, nice lemonade, just with a little bit of a shot of tequila. Stay and have a good time. And so they do. They start putting a few Bud Lights in their belly. Next thing you know, they're drunk, they're fed, and the father convinces them once again, no, don't leave. Don't leave. Stay another night. Well, this continues again and again and again and draws our attention to 19, chapter 10. But unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went toward Jebus. That is Jerusalem with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. And then we know later in the story also his male servant. And so they end up going on their way. And there's kind of this tension because they're leaving and they recognize the dangers of continuing on in the journey during the nighttime because this was desert terrain or rocky terrain with a lot of different tribes and civilizations living around. But they don't want to stay anywhere that is not of Israel for fear of their safety. And so rather than staying somewhere close in a pagan area, they decided to go on further later on into the night so that they could be safe. And so they end up in Gibeah, which is a community and a part of the tribe of Benjamin. And they start looking for a place to stay. What's unfortunate about this is uh, nobody wants to welcome them into their home, so they start in the city court, and they just sit down kind of in the middle. Well, anyway, an old man, later on after a hard day's work, sees this community of people, these group of people who are strangers to him, but he's from the town of Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim. He probably recognized the same culture, maybe the same skin color, maybe the same language of this other person who's also from the tribe of Ephraim. And so he invites him while he's staying in Gibeah to live in his kind of, to, to sleep, to stay the night with him and his family. 
And so the Levite says, yeah, that'd be great. We got the alcohol. We got the food. You don't need to provide anything for us. In fact, we'll bring the party to you. So they go, they start enjoying themselves. And this brings us to verse 22. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so that we can have sex with him. And so you've got this situation where the old man has this stranger, has this concubine, has this male servant in his house. He then goes and he says, he's begging the people. He says, no, 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 please don't do this evil thing. This evil thing. Instead, he does this. Verse 24. Look, here is my virgin daughter and then this man's concubine. I will bring them out to you now and you can use them and do not and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. And I can't read the next verse because of how evil and vile and disturbing it is. And I don't want to trigger anyone who's been abused in their life. But what happens to this woman is the most sinful thing you can think of. She ends up dead on the porch the next morning. And um, it's just a situation filled with just the most brokenness of humanity. And if you thought that was bad, unfortunately, it only gets worse. So this man ends up, Levite ends up going outside the next morning, finding his dead concubine on the doorstep, picks her up, throws her on his donkey as if nothing happened, then goes on his way, and when he arrives, he realizes she is dead and decides the best alternative, the best way to get news out about this vile situation that happened in the tribe of Benjamin through the people of Gibeah, this was his solution, was to cut up her body into 12 pieces and then send those out to the 12 tribes of Israel. And so that's what this man did And verse 30. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done. Not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something so speak up. And that's how chapter 19 ends. And if you thought the story was bad, it only gets worse. So they end up having these meetings as a community. The 11 tribes of Israel come together. And they recognize that such an evil thing has happened. They need to do something to confront this injustice. And the people of Gibeah were a city, were a community, a part, a small community, a part of the tribe of Benjamin. So one of the original 12 tribes of Israel. And so they're talking about all of this evil thing. What should they do? And they end up reaching out to the people of Benjamin. And they say, hey, how about this? How about you just give us the people of Gibeah? We'll kill them all so that we can punish them for this act. Tribe of Benjamin disagrees. They say, no, we're going to stand up for the evil of Gibeah and we'll go to war against you. So they muster 20 plus thousand soldiers going up against the tribes of Israel. So verse 10 of chapter 20, we'll take 10 out of every 100 from all the tribes of Israel and a 100 from a 1,000 and a 1,000 from 10,000 to get provisions for the army. Then when the army arrives, 
Gibeah and Benjamin. It can give them what they deserve for this outrageous act done in Israel. So all the Israelites got together and united as one against the city. And so their decision was to go and murder and kill as many people to make up for the terrible thing that happened. I want to make a note. Consequences should happen from this situation. It's a very evil thing, very broken thing, very sinful thing. Yet the Israelites chose to do what was right in their own eye. And it leads to the story only getting worse. And so they end up going to battle against the people of Benjamin. And this is what happens in the next part of the passage, verse 21. The Benjamites came out of Gibeah and cut down 22,000 Israelites on the battlefield that day. But the Israelites encouraged one another and again took up their positions where they had stationed themselves the first day. So they go up a second time in our story and they're like, hey, Let's gather our soldiers and go up again. They end up doing it. And the people of Gibeah and the people of Benjamin end up doing the exact same thing, slaughtering thousands and thousands of Israelites. And they start getting cocky. Okay, we can do this. They were clearly outnumbered. The people of Benjamin had 20,000 plus soldiers, 25,000 soldiers. And the people of Benjamin, uh, people, the other 11 tribes of Israel had over 400,000 soldiers. And so what ends up happening is the uh, people of Israel start crying out to God a third time. And they're like, God, what shall we do? And God says, go up. Go up. And we'll talk about that a little bit later in the message. So they take that and they go back to war against the Benjamites. And this time they see success. I want to draw your attention to verse 35. The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And on that day, the Israelites struck down 25,000 Benjamites, all armed with swords. However, what happened is, as they're striking this down, 600 soldiers, male soldiers from Benjamin, end up fleeing to the wilderness. End up fleeing to the wilderness. And as they flee, Israel decides to take it a step further. And they go and they murder all of the men all of the women, all of the children. They burn down all of the houses. All of the flocks are murdered, are killed. All of the animals are destroyed. And the the wheat is burned. And it is just a pile of rubbish that became that of the city and tribe of Benjamin. And if you thought that was bad, unfortunately, it only gets worse. So what happens next is, Israel wants to make sure that they don't play a role in helping reproduce the community of Benjamin. They know there's 600 men still still alive. And so they come up and they take an oath. And this is in chapter 21, verse 1. The men of Israel had taken an oath at Mizpah. Not one of us will give their daughter in marriage to a Benjamite. And so they start grieving that the tribe of Benjamin, with no other women, only 600 males, is doomed to die. Their heritage, their family names, the tribe of Benjamin will be no more. And so, verse 3, Lord God of Israel, they cried, why has this happened to Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? 
And again, if you thought the story was bad, unfortunately, it only gets worse. They continue to make decisions that are right in their eye. They continue to allow sin to be the root of their evil. And so they come together and they decide to choose a city, a city that is a part of Israel, but not necessarily one of the main tribes of Israel. And so just kind of a community of people. They find the Benjamites and they say, hey, we've taken this oath. We can't give you some of our virgin daughters. But what we can do is we can go to war against this other community Kill all of them, all the 20,000 people, and find as many virgin daughters to steal from them to then give to you, Benjamin. So they agreed to this. Verse 11, this is what you are to do. They said, kill every male and woman who is not a virgin. So they go to war. They end up finding 400 able women to qualify under their needs. However, there's 600 men. And so they start panicking again. Like, how are we going to restore Benjamin back to what they once were? And so they come up with another master plan to make things only worse. And they say, hey, how about Jabesh? Or how about Shiloh? The, the previous community that they stole from the first time was from Jabesh Gilead. Now they're moving on to Shiloh and they're like, what about this? We have a festival coming up. And so the women will come out and dance at Shiloh. What if we tell the 200 remaining Benjamites to go out, steal one of the daughters, run them over their shoulder back to Benjamin and the pile of rubble so that they can start reproducing once again. And the way we can pull this off is we'll just tell the people of Shiloh for the tribes of Israel, hey, guess what? You took an oath that you wouldn't give up your daughter to be married. You never say anything about we couldn't steal them from you. So you're not breaking the oath is kind of how they twisted it. And so this is what happened in verse 20. So they instructed the Benjamites saying, go and hide in the vineyards and watch. When the young women of Shiloh come out to join in the dancing, rush from the vineyards and each of you sees one of them to be your wife. Then return to the land of Benjamin. And so that is what they did. When the dancing happened, the 200 remaining men from Benjamin went, stole their wives, and they went with their other 600 males, and then the 600 stolen women, and they go back to the rubbish pile of Benjamin of what was left, and they start rebuilding their community. It only got worse. Every decision that was made. And that's how the story of Judges ends with decision after decision after decision. I think what's so heartbreaking for me is this story started with the abuse of a woman and it ended with the abuse of 600 women and then million, or thousands and thousands and thousands of other innocent people. And yet that is so often what our sin does. And, and as we read that story, I'm not going to make the jump like, and how are you the people of Gibeah? Because let's just be honest, th this is an evil, sinful, disgusting, disturbing, vile three chapters in the scripture. Unfortunately, there are incidents like this that happen throughout the world. So I don't want you to try to say, well, okay, how can I try to relate that story to necessarily my life and like try to feel, you can feel the grief and feel the brokenness. But in, instead what we're going to do is I'm going to walk through eight takeaways from this story of what happens in our lives when we allow sin to be the root for our decision making and 
when we do what's right in our own eye versus what's right in God's eye. And so these eight takeaways are going to be on the screen. Um, If you're a note taker, you'll love this. Takeaway number one from what I see from the scripture happens in chapter 19, verse 20. It is welcome our neighbor. Welcome our neighbor. And so we actually see something really cool that happens at the beginning of the story is this individual, this older man, sees someone who is a stranger to him and invites him into his home. Now, I'm not saying that every single one of you has to go and find a stranger and invite them into your home. Some people, that is something God may call you to do at some point. I've had friends who have invited strangers into their home who were in times of need. So you don't have to take it to the extreme to still say, how can you serve someone you don't know? Some, it might be inviting a stranger into your home. Some, it might be adoption. Some, it might be serving. Some, it might be being generous. Some, it might be buying someone coffee The list goes on and on and on. But I think it's so important for us to be a friend to the friendless, to be a neighbor to the neighborless, to be a helping hand to the stranger. And I see that in the story. I see the good that starts with that. Unfortunately, sin entered into that decision-making, and that comes for number two takeaway. Speak up against injustices. Speak up an act against injustices. This comes from chapter 19, verse 30. The community gets together. I actually want to go back and read that verse. Chapter 19, verse 30, because I think the, the language is powerful. It says this. After this situation, everyone who was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something, so speak up. Speak up. When you see injustices... Don't settle in your privilege and your comfortability. Speak up. Act up in a pure way, though, because that is where this situation continues to get worse as sin starts to charge their decision-making in the midst of their injustices. Takeaway number three. Sinful actions trigger sinful reactions. Now, this isn't just scriptural. This is actually scientific, psychologically. Your brain's are naturally wired to respond one of three ways immediately to a situation. Anger, panic, and fear. Your brains are naturally, like, literally scientifically, it's been proven that your brains are literally wired so that when you are approached with a situation, a confrontation, or what it might be, your brain's first instinct is to respond back in anger, respond back in panic, or respond back in fear. And so you as an individual have to try every single moment, every single day to capture your thoughts and to renew your mind. It's almost like Paul knew what he was talking about without knowing the science behind what he was talking about. Every single moment, because sinful actions trigger sinful reactions. They don't cause sinful reactions because you can make the choice to react in a pure way but they trigger, immediately trigger that response, that negative response. And so you have to make the active decision to say, you know what, when I'm on a roundabout and that person cuts me off, I'm not going to be like our lead pastor and swear. I'm going to be better than our lead pastor. When I'm at Panda Express and they ask if I want to give more money, I'm not going to be like our online pastor and say only 10 cents. 
I'm going to give more than that. And so on and so forth. But the reality is sinful actions trigger sinful reactions. Takeaway number four, you can be unified in sin and be in a Christian atmosphere. So many times I think what happens is we see unity amongst a decision or amongst our group of people, and we think, okay, God is in this place where two or more are gathered, and there's truth there. But we're prideful individuals. And so just because you have unity in your decision-making doesn't necessarily mean you're not in the wrong. This comes from chapter 20, verse 11. They actually gathered their community, and I'm going to go back to that verse. Verse 11 So all the Israelites got together and united as one against the city. Don't get me wrong. Like I said, there needed to be justice. There needed to be consequences for the actions. But their failure to do so in a loving way and in a just way led to more and more sin. And so you can be unified with a group of people and still be in the wrong. And that leads me to takeaway number five. Victory does not equal approval. And more importantly, victory does not always equal God's approval. Sometimes the evil one inevitably has to win. You might have the battle of two evils going up against each other. And sometimes this is what happens, you know, just to make things more relevant. Whether it be a political party or whether it be a decision-making or someone got promoted to a job. Got promoted, you know, and you, got, you did not get the job promotion. Or this political candidate when you thought, God's in this. God's in that. God is in this decision-making. Sometimes the evil one or the evil thing gets promoted. And it doesn't necessarily mean that that was approved by God. And here's actually... Um, what this leads to is in the sixth one, is God grants us our desires of our hearts. God grants us our sinful desires and our pure desires. We actually see this in Romans chapter 1, where Paul writes this to the church of Rome, Therefore God gave them over in sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Romans chapter 1, 24. Then we see some of the different psalms that say, hey, and if you ask God in love, if you ask God in grace, if you ask God in a pure heart, God will grant you the desires of your heart if you ask in his name. We serve a God of free will, which comes with free consequences or free blessings apart from our decision making. And here's how I'll I'll prove this kind of in the text that we walk through that God grants us the decisions of our hearts. In the midst of all of this Three chapters, God only speaks three times. Three times. And each time he speaks, he uses this phrase, Allah. It's a Hebrew word, A-L-A. It has various meanings, the most popular which mean to go up, to ascend to, to rise up, to visit, to communicate with. And the Israelites take that and they end up going to war and murdering thousands and thousands and thousands of people. God was not in that. And here's how I know that. Verse 3, chapter 20. We'll go back to it. Lord God of Israel, they cried, why has this happened to Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? And God is silent. There is no response. No longer a response from God for the rest of the story. I have to imagine he's broken. He's weeping. He's grieving. He's hurting over his humanity. 
of how evil things had gotten when people continue to do what's wrong and right in their own eyes. It's always going to be a root of sin when we lead from our own heart's desires. And God's going to grant us those desires. We don't serve a dictatorship. We serve a God who sees us, who cares for us. And if our heart's desires are that of sin, like we see in Paul's writing, it will lead to sin. Takeaway number seven, the wages of sin then are death. The wages of sin then are death. And we saw that literally in this story. And we can also see it figuratively with some of the decisions that we make and the destruction that sin has. There is permanent damage that comes from the addiction of pornography. Permanent psychological and brain damage that is compared to that of a cocaine addiction. That is irreversible. It is destroying. It is destructive. Much like a lot of the other addictions. Alcohol. Temptation. Sex. And the list goes on and on and on. The wages of those sin are destruction, are death, are pain, are suffering. And this is what Paul writes about it, though, in chapter 6 of the verse in Romans, verse 23. For the wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. While the gift of death and the gift of sin is destruction, the gift of Christ is life. And so even though we are depraved, we are born and broken at birth, if we continue to renew our mind, we can lean into the gift of God and have eternal life. And this is the final takeaway, number eight. Don't live life at the expense of others. I stole this from our, one of our values for our youth group. Every youth trip, every Sunday night, every D-Now conference, every Olympiad, every event that our youth and our teens do, Trevor and Courtney, both start the trip off by saying, don't have fun at the expense of others. This isn't about you. Life is not about you. A me-first mentality, an us-first mentality is not a godly mentality. We are called to have an others-first and a God-first mentality. And so don't live life at the expense of others. And we see this, the final verse, it's not going to be on the screen. The final verse of Judges 21 is this. This is how the whole story ends. In those days, Israel had no king. So everyone did as they saw fit. And that's how Judges ends. I want to be a church that doesn't do how we see fit. I want to be a church that leans in to what God does. And so for these eight takeaways, for the rest of this series, we're going to be walking through those different stories of what does that look like for you. But, but the thing I want to close with, and I really want you to be thinking about is, sin destroys. And when you do things that are right in your eye, without allowing the Holy Spirit to lead you and to guide you, it will only get worse. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for your scriptures, for your word, for the Bible, for this truth, for the wisdom you've granted me for these moments. I thank you for this community, God, um, and for these people. I pray, Heavenly Father, God, that we would use these words, apply them to our life, lean into the eight takeaways, and walk away saying, you know what, God, it's not about me. 
I refuse to do what's right in my eye, and I lean into what's right in your eye. In your name I pray. Amen.